Hi, welcome to episode five of the Inside Social Work podcast. In this episode, I chat with Victoria Chintio, who's been a social worker for over 40 years. He has experience in healthcare, teaching, private practice, with a really interesting personal story. He talks about his journey into becoming a social worker and some of the things that he's struggled with over time, some of the research that he's looked into, and some of the personal experiences he's had working with vulnerable communities. We chat about our journeys, uh, what's brought us into podcasting, and we share some tips for social workers coming into the field. I hope you find this podcast interesting. Remember to subscribe, leave us a rating or review if you found it helpful, share with your family and friends, and thanks for hanging out with us. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Inside Social Work podcast. Today, I have a special treat. I have an interview with Vittorio Gintio, where we're interviewing each other for our respective podcasts. So buckle up, listen in. Um, there'll be some really good uh, pearls of wisdom from Vittorio, who's been a social worker for over 40 years with a whole bunch of experience in a variety of different fields. So welcome to the podcast, Vittorio. Oh, it's delightful to be here and it's kind of strange to be uh being interviewed and interviewing at the same time, but I guess that's what podcasters do. Yeah, I can I can definitely say it's given me a new sense of empathy for what it's like to be in the in this chair and being interviewed uh, instead of being the interviewer the whole time. So you've been a social worker for over forty years with experience in healthcare, teaching, private practice, um, and you've got a very interesting personal story which you discuss um, in some detail on your blog. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the key moments for you? that defined your social work career or, or led you to kind of choose social work as a career? Uh, it seemed accidental at the time, but in hindsight, probably wasn't. I was actually studying history and my partner at the time was doing social work and what she was doing was far more interesting than, uh, than what I was doing and I imagined myself as a historian sitting in the library reading, you know, original documents and thinking, do I really want to do that when I could be out talking to people? Um, so I'm a bit of a people person, I suppose, and that that was an easy jump to make. Wonderful. So, um, but how about you? What led you to social work? Um, for me, it wasn't a sort of, oh, and I, I didn't even know what social work was, to be honest. I, mm. I kind of just chose subjects throughout school that I enjoyed, mm. uh, found my way into psychology, and then from there I thought, um, what can I do next? I really enjoyed working with people. I really enjoyed sort of the mental health component of psychology, and I really enjoyed looking at things from a bigger systems approach. So I was also studying criminology at the time, so I kind of had this these two subjects that were very much linked but then also kind of opposites where one looked at systemic and sort of sociopolitical impact of certain things on behaviour and then one very much looking at the individual and how they behaved Um, and I found my way into social work so I was able to choose something that I could really do both I could focus really individual on someone on their behaviours thoughts feelings emotions but then look at things from a bigger policy or systems perspective and I guess I've loved it ever since. I've been able to work across different sectors. I've been able to um, cross-pollinate ideas and also use some of those skills in different ways across different fields. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a direct path. It started off um, in all different places, and sometimes I feel like if it gets a bit too much, I might give it all up and become a florist. Okay. <laughs> 
I must admit, I found psychology pretty boring at uni. Um, psych 1 was rats and stats, um, and psych 2 wasn't much better. Yep. Um, I only came to appreciate the importance of psychology much later in my practice. Um, yeah, so what, what was your take on psychology? I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed learning about how all the different bits of the brain work and everything from our sensation, uh, yeah. our hearing, our taste, mm. how we form memory, how we learn. I found that really useful. Ironically, I found it funny that they were teaching us the best way to learn and then would assess us in a way that wasn't consistent with that. So that drove me nuts, having yeah. to do these hour, hours and hours long multiple choice exams, trying to memorise these minute little details when we knew that that wasn't the best way to measure intelligence or to yeah. measure someone's yeah. success in the workplace. And I think I, I did enjoy the stats. I think that's something perhaps we don't do very well to kind of quantify our work and to be able to look at uh, the effectiveness of interventions and the effectiveness of some of what we do as social workers. So I'm really glad that I had that foundation of um, of statistics and research methods to understand it a little bit better. And it did come in handy when I did um, a research year and did a thesis to be able to kind of look at what the research was saying, where I wanted to take things and be able to write that up in a little bit more of an academic way. What was your thesis about? I was looking at the perceived needs of staff who work with clients that have an alcohol-related brain injury in a supported nursing home. And, um, yeah, so it was really interesting. So we looked at kind of how they work with difficult and challenging behaviours, what are the needs they had around training and support mm. and some of the sort of funding and systemic issues around people who are not living in aged care facilities but are not necessarily of old age, mm-hmm. so have slightly different needs. Um, and most of them had d- challenging behaviours or challenges with memory because of their back brain injury that resulted from long-standing alcohol abuse. Yeah. So the psychosocial consequences of the brain injury were really important to... Yeah, and they presented as um, sometimes disinhibited or quite problematic uh, for the staff. So it was looking at my research was looking at how to best support them in that particular facility and what their needs were and what their training and sort of personal professional development goals were. Yeah, yeah. I actually majored in community development in my social work, my initial social work degree, and um, I had a very arrogant attitude towards. Uh, working with individuals and working in groups, thinking that the real, you know, the only and best way forward was to work with communities, and that and that other stuff was just, um, you know, skirting around the edges of social change. But then I started to read uh, Freud and started to think more deeply about um, human behaviour and our ethics, our values, our theories about what motivates us. And there are some things that Freud said, like, you know, the two big motivators are love and work, you know, and the role of um, love and social connection seemed to me to be really important and working with individuals seemed really important. And so my first job was actually in a large psychiatric hospital in a psychotherapy unit, um, something that I wasn't really equipped for at all, but really enjoyed, really enjoyed that uh, those first couple of years in a large psychiatric unit before I moved on to working with kids and families at the kids' hospital in Sydney when I was in Camperdown. So with all that experience in the field, what um, what led you to get into podcasting? It seems like a bit of a bit out of left field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I've been blogging for a while um, and 
that was really fun, still is. But I've also been a big fan of podcasting for a long time in the sense that I've got a, a long drive to work and when I'm doing chores around the house or gardening or stuff like that or just, um, you know, half hour before going to sleep, listening to a podcast was always really a way of listening to interesting conversations. And mm-hmm. the thing that strikes me about podcasting is that it's really intimate. I remember as a kid listening to talk back radio and getting irritated, amused, excited, um, but it was always engaging in a way that other mediums are not. If you're reading a newspaper or watching television, it's kind of a cool medium, but radio is sort of a hot medium, and I just think of podcasting as being curated radio, you know, radio that you can dial up when you want, and so there's a particular show you like. So podcasts about um, politics, football, the arts, health, a lot of radio national podcasts I really love. They provide a great service, I think, Radio National and ABC in general. Yeah, the, the All in the Mind podcast is That's fantastic. Fabulous. I absolutely yeah. love that. Yeah, me That's a really good one. Mm. But there's also religion, law, philosophy, yeah. fantastic stuff there. So I thought they're things that uh, I really enjoy listening to when I try it myself because... Conversation is such a lovely thing to have conversations with people about stuff you're really interested in that they're really interested in. And sometimes I've talked to people who have had a very limited audience. You know, they might have written a PhD about something and a handful of people have read it. So a podcast, they get to talk about their ideas in a, in a, and talk about it in plain English rather than the sort of academic terms. So it's... Uh, provides interesting uh, insights for an audience of social workers and it's great fun for me to do. Yeah. So how did you get into podcasting and your motivations? It was interesting. I found I listened to quite a lot of podcasts, especially around beginning in private practice, so yeah. setting up the private practice, but also different therapeutic techniques and learning about different theories and frameworks. So, you know, I'd listen to them on my way to and from work or... Just like you said, having that radio almost kind of at the, your fingertips and being able to choose the topic. Yeah. And, and at the time I was working um, as one of the university liaison officers in field education, I was getting the same sorts of questions from the students on placement. Mm. And I just thought it would be really nice to be able to curate some of those frequently asked questions and yeah. point people in the direction of resources and either, like you said, with putting that sort of really new research into language, plain English, and have a conversation around a PhD thesis or a new pilot program or something a little bit more, maybe not necessarily local, but starting off local and then looking at what's happening in the field, what's happening in universities, what are people working on to inspire others, to give them ideas, to give them a sense of new ways of integrating various techniques into their role because social work is so diverse and you need to have such a broad understanding of so many things and often people can't get out to professional development days as frequently as they'd like so I thought it'd be a really good chance to maybe give people a bit of an insight into oh this person does you know maybe CBT training and I really like their voice I really like their style I'd like to consider spending my hard-earned money in the two days of PD leave I get on this so really trying to give them a bit of an idea but I had been sitting on it for I think about a year so definitely had that big imposter syndrome and thinking about 
who'd want to listen to me and what can I possibly have to offer? And then when I decided I'd do it, I was like, I don't know the technology, I can't work out the microphone, what do I use? So it was a very, very big learning curve, uh, several mini meltdowns, and we're here and we're, we're getting there. So I'm hoping that it's providing people with an opportunity to, to ask questions as well. So we've got the Facebook page that people can join or the Facebook group, and then I can start kind of pulling together and picking out topics that, are interesting to them. Yeah, I've really enjoyed your podcast. I think they're a fabulous gift to the social work profession. So, yeah, thanks very much. Likewise, and that's how we found each other. So, yeah. it's also really good for me. I get to connect with um, other people in the field and in various fields that overlap with ours and make some new professional networks. Yeah. That's been really fun. So some of the questions that have come from our listeners, uh, in particular in the Facebook group and um, some private email messages, uh, some, some inbox in my inbox, a questions around, you know, what what do you wish you knew when you had started? So what are some of the things that going back to your early days as a social worker, mm. do you wish you knew? Yeah. Um, I wish I'd known then and maybe it's not possible because there's a life's lessons, but I wish I'd known how little I know and I wish I'd known the importance of listening I came with uh, came to social work, I guess, with a bit of hubris, a bit of arrogance about. I read a lot of stuff. I had some very strong ideas about things. I was heavily into psychoanalytic theory, and I thought that was the be all and end all. And so, um, having those edges knocked off and realizing that uh, uh, I'm not sure how to put it realising that listening and letting people work things out for themselves no matter what the context is is fundamental and I keep telling students now you're the midwife to the story so I wish I'd known that then when I started out You're the midwife to the story what do you mean by that? Um, Well I suppose I'm a bit of a social constructionist in the sense that we are born into a particular world uh, and many things are laid out for us. We don't appear to have that many choices, but we try and work things out and we try and work out how we're going to be in the world, uh, what kind of work we're going to do, what kind of relationships we're going to have, how we relate to our communities. A lot of that's laid out, but a lot of that's sort of negotiable. So we are constantly evolving our own story. And if we get stuck somewhere along the way, friends, relatives, family can help you out, and sometimes a social worker. But the social worker is there to help you along the journey um, in the same way that a midwife is giving birth to something new, exciting. And that's the... So it's kind of a an echo of narrative therapy too, which I think is made a great contribution to social work and it was pioneered by Michael White, but now a very famous social worker worldwide and the narrative ideas have, have lent a lot to, to what we do so I think if, if he was around he'd like my phrase <laughs> the story. I'm sure some of our listeners will like it as well so um what do you wish you'd known when you'd started out? 
I think it's similar with some of the things you mentioned, but I guess for me it was around the assumptions that I made. So being young and having a degree and I guess all that pressure at high school to do well, at, you know, to get into uni and then you do well at uni to get into postgrad and there's this constant pressure academically. And often people on the receiving end of your support don't care. They're like, I don't want your fancy-smancy degrees and they, they want that human connection. Um, and I remember an occasion where I really put my foot in it where um, it was such an innocent comment. I was talking to someone who lived in supported residential housing and it was just after the Easter long weekend. This was going back about 10 years ago. And I was like, oh, how was your Easter weekend? Did you get some Easter eggs? And he was just like, well, no, because I don't have anybody to give me Easter eggs. So even just really, that really threw me. And I remember it to this day that, and I just made that assumption, like, of course, everybody had dinner or, or family lunch or something and had Easter eggs and a meal. And that wasn't the case for him. So that was really one of those moments where I was like, wow, that's, that's not the case for everybody. So it was really humbling to think, you know, even how I would target interventions to be, oh, why don't you talk to your family about this at the dinner table? You know, ever since then, I really thought, well, maybe some people don't sit down around the dinner table to have those conversations. So how can I come at it with a bit more curiosity and less assumption? So how was your week and what did you get up to? Instead of saying, oh, did you have a nice weekend? Did you get lots of Easter eggs? So I think that's probably, that was one of my biggest standout moments where mm. I was just, I was really thrown by that. Um, and I really felt for him and it was, yeah, it was quite a big learning curve, I think, for me. Yeah, I've had very similar sorts of experience where you realise that you don't know much about the other person and you really have to listen to them. Yeah, I think you're so right. So um, what areas of work or techniques are you curious about right now? Uh, at the moment, I'm focusing a lot on working with families and couples. So in my private practice, I do a lot of couples therapy and family therapy and I'm doing some more formal education um, as a Master's of Family Therapy. So I guess that's something that's really been interest, of interest to me and in how to consolidate that, working a lot primarily with young people. I felt that I needed to involve the family and I needed to understand the systems and the patterns and the behaviours that they were presenting with that often resulted from maybe not conflict at home but just patterns of behaviour that led to a particular need not being met or finding, a, I guess, a maladaptive way of getting those needs met. So really that's been something of, of particular interest to me uh, and doing a lot of work around sort of attachment and learning about trauma and the impacts of those early carer, sort of primary carer, infant um, contact and how that can have a big influence over life and your relationships both romantically with, with parents or with, with family and friends. So that's probably one of the things I'm most interested in and doing a lot of work around at the moment. Mm -hmm. How about yourself? Um, areas of work techniques. Um, there's a couple of areas where I'm sort of putting my energies, energies at the moment. One is working with... Um, initiatives in my workplace around closing the gap with mm -hmm. Indigenous health. So working with the Aboriginal Health Unit around projects that can help us to connect our Aboriginal population better with health services because the earlier the interventions start, the more chance people have. And a lot of what we're seeing now in terms of chronic illness were things that started many, many years ago so I'm really interested in developing projects that uh, break that cycle. And there's a lot of great people 
in my health district um, Aboriginal people who are really keen to have partners to work with that stuff so that's one thing I'm really enjoying um, the other thing that I like to do more of but finding it more difficult to get into that space is palliative care uh, this is an area that where I think that things are getting worse rather than better when you think about the last three years of a person's life often most of it goes really well but the last few days and weeks can be a disaster uh, and that's because of a whole range of reasons but I think we need to get that better and so that's about starting to think about those things earlier uh, as you know I'm a member of Dying With Dignity and I feel quite passionate about people having choices, people remaining connected and people not suffering unnecessarily, all those kinds of things. But I think the key message is in, for anyone really, no matter what stage in their life, the key question is uh, if life is short, what are your priorities? Very simple question. And everything then goes from that, you know. Do you want to eat chocolate and watch football, do you want to climb Mount Everest, whatever you want to do, your community, your family, your healthcare workers should all be kind of gathering around you trying to help make that happen. And we just don't see enough of that. Mm. You know, it's uh, in the medical system, it's all too much about when do we turn off the machine and when does treatment become futile and all that kind of nonsense, which I think is about the last days, which then can end up being very miserable most people want to die at home with their family around them. It doesn't happen very much. You know, how much effort have we made to really address that? I'm not convinced. So I think there need to be, you know, more community focus on that. So it's a, it's a political and an ethical and a clinical question for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I can definitely empathise with that, having um, grandparents and one of them being in his 90s and in aged care. It, it's something that we're kind of faced with daily where we think about what is sort of the quality of life and, and even dignity of risk, like even letting some people just Absolutely. do something and if they mess it up, so what? You know, yeah. yes, he's diabetic, but if he wants that extra scone, let him have it. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and there's some, some work, some really good work that I remember being done uh, when I was in the disability sector where it was letting people have that autonomy of choice and saying, yeah. well, this is the level of risk we're prepared to deal with and you can make some of those choices. Yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes people need to, to experience those things. Yeah, we get very patronising with the elderly around risk. Uh, and there's so many people I've spoken to over the years who, with elderly parents who want to keep them in cotton wool and don't respect their autonomy. And I say to them, well, if roles were reversed, how would, what would you want? How would you feel? Mm. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. It's really hard. So touching on that, what I mean, what are some of the advice or the support that you would suggest that social workers or other practitioners who work in that space can tap into or can access? So it can be quite, um, I imagine, quite heavy seeing people often at the end of their life seeing bereaved family members or family members scared to make those decisions or not knowing where to go and all those emotions I can imagine would have quite a high risk of potentially burnout. Yeah, yeah. I think there are two elements to that issue and I think it's a really important issue and getting more and more so. One of it is, part of it is around self-care uh, and the 
most fundamental element of self-care is really good supervision because if as social workers we're not engaged in reflective practice, then we will burn out very quickly. There's got to be a continuous feedback loop of learning, of being able to have time and space and safety of a supervisor that you really connect with and feel safe with to be able to continually process the work because it is quite taxing work and it does take a lot out of you. Unless you have that quiet, safe, reflective space to consider, to learn, to uh, get ideas from the literature, all those things, uh, it seems to me to be really, really important. The other element of it is is the organisation's responsibility to look after you. And that's about facilitating the learning, facilitating the CPD, not uh, demanding excessive workloads, those kinds of things. And I think that uh, we put our new grads, particularly under a lot of stress, throwing them in the deep end, not providing them with the kind of support that they really need. And that's an organisational failure. That's not a failure of the individual. So it's those two things together that I think uh, mitigate that risk and, you know, make you want to go to work every day and feel challenged and interested, not tired and I can't do this anymore and I need a rest. Yeah, I like how you said that it's not an individual, um, I guess, shortcoming. It's sort of an organisational problem where they're not yeah. supporting particular early career social workers who might be so excited to get their first job or not feel as confident to kind of push that agenda a little bit more of these are the needs that I have. Yeah. And that came up in one of my earlier podcast interviews with, um, with uh, Associate Professor Ronnie Egan where she talks about, you know, if you've got the ability to be able to negotiate what your supervision would look like before you accept the job and ask about those supervision policies yeah. and then have a really clear supervision contract yeah. and really understand that that's what the limitations of the organisation are and if you feel you need additional support, yeah. then that's a really good idea as well. And that's something I probably wish I had done earlier was have really good external supervision so that it can span over multiple right. job roles so someone yeah. could really get to know me and challenge some of those things. Because with line management, it can be really tough to say, I'm struggling with this or how am I coping with this because they're also responsible for your performance and your yeah. and performance and evaluation and people management and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So it's a really, it can be a really difficult relationship to negotiate. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in line management being absolutely separate from clinical supervision. That very rarely happens. Well, but it, it's, it's something that we need to really absolutely as a profession because... Uh, when they're mixed, the conflict of interest can become overwhelming. Yeah, I agree. Tell me, what's something that you failed at? <laughs> when, when I originally saw when I saw that question, I was I was actually thinking of the story I shared earlier about that gentleman who I asked, oh, "How was your you know your Easter and did you get Easter eggs?" And that was one that I thought, "Wow, that was I really put my foot in it." And I've probably had several attempts, several attempts, several further sort of instances like that, especially working with young people, where I might be like, "Oh, here's." You know, here are some, some fact sheets or here's something that you can just go home and read and not even understanding that that person might not be literate or saying, why don't you do this self-esteem building activity at home over the dinner table, not knowing if that family ever sits down and has dinner. So I think for me, my sort of failures have been those small instances that I've just made assumptions about someone's life or their routine and sort of had moments where I've forgotten my own, I guess, fortune and privilege and luck to be where I am. Not that it hasn't come without, you know, with hard work, without work and, and study, but 
a lot of it was luck and being born a particular yeah. able-bodied person to a particular culture in a particular country that gave me the resources to get to where I am and that's not the case for everybody. Yeah. So yeah. I think, you know... We are blessed, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that can be quite confronting for some people because they yeah. feel, um, you know, they can get a little bit defensive when it's, you know, we talk about luck and privilege, but it's definitely... There's still some who are more privileged and I can't, you know not acknowledge the the amazing privilege I've had, especially when you're talking about sort of closing the gap and some of the intergenerational issues that surround our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, I guess that's something that I perhaps not have failed at, but I've definitely been learning and keep being reminded of that it's something I keep, need to keep focusing and learning. Okay. I mean, so same goes to you. So you mentioned on your website, one of your blog posts, that you had moments of despair, wondering whether social work could make a difference. Yeah. Where did that yeah. come from? Was that something that you you sort of you felt you failed at, or was that just yeah. a? Yeah. Well, look, there was a moment when I thought I need to get out of social work, and uh, this was in the eighties, maybe early nineties. I can't remember exactly now, but I went to. Um, one of the senior managers in my organisation and said, I'd like to have a crack at being a business manager. That looks like an interesting job. And uh, he said, yeah, okay, when an acting position comes up, we can throw you in there. Because I didn't feel at the time that people were not paying attention to the social work mission in my organisation, that uh, resources were being cut, that... uh, patients' dignity and human rights was being ignored and I couldn't get traction, you know, I was considered to be a nuisance and so on and thought, is this really for me? So it was a moment of um, um, of giving up, really. So I was a business manager for a few months and I failed miserably at that. Look, it was an important, it was an important learning experience because... As a, as a clinician, you realise that you have a lot of autonomy in the moment in terms of helping people and that you're dealing with the truth. Uh, the truth is so important uh, therapeutically. You, you can't deal in falsehoods or bullshit or whatever. Uh, everything has to be real. Whereas in the world of an administration, uh, the politics, the backstabbing um, and... The, the naked sort of competition around the allocation of resources, I was like a babe in the woods. Now when I, when people come to my organisation now, which is sort of a large hospital and a, and a health district which has community health and primary care and mental health and so on, I say to the students and the new grads coming in, this may look like one hospital to you, but it's not. It's probably about five or six hospitals under the same roof, all competing ruthlessly for resources. There's a mental health hospital, there's a, there's a critical care hospital, there's a surgical hospital, there's a medical hospital, there's a birthing and paediatric hospital, and they're all out to get each other. So anyway, as a business manager of surgery, I soon found that out, and I found out that... Um, Ethically, it wasn't my cup of tea. And it gave me a renewed passion for social work because I realised that actually I'm a social worker, always will be, and that I love it. And 
the ethical commitments of our profession is fundamental to um, my, you know, my professional identity. So how did you get over that? Like what support did you need to either make that decision uh, or, or get your faith back in, in social work? Well, there was a long period of licking my wounds, I think, and kind of grieving and thinking, that was so stupid, why did I do that? And recovering my enthusiasm and rebuilding relationships and the mistrust when I got back into social work saying, well, Victoria is just an ambitious guy, he doesn't care about us, and having to rebuild those relationships was really painful. So it was about, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk and getting real. So it wasn't easy. It was a, a very dark period in my life. So it sounds like it's a fitting segue for my next question, which was around what are some of what have been some of the most challenging things about being a social worker. So you had some challenges and you lost a bit of faith, so you tried a slightly different career move, yeah. um, more of a managerial administrative role. But in general in social work, what have been some of those most challenging moments um, or instances? I think the challenge clinically is also where the fun is because um, I've done some very painful, you know, painful work in my life because working in a critical care, intensive care, emergency environment, you're in the room where kids are dying, babies are dying, people have had horrific car accidents, whatever. And so that's incredibly challenging but also incredibly rewarding to have the privilege of sharing those most painful moments with a fellow human being and just being there for them uh, when nobody else can bear to. And you know that you have to, that's your job, and you've equipped yourself as best you can for it. So they've been the best times, but also the most draining times. What have been some of the most... Well, I guess you answered at the same time. Some of the most memorable or rewarding moments seem to be almost that paradox of some of the most challenging moments also have that flip side of being rewarding at the same time. Sure. Well, a lot of the rewards to have come for me over the years in um, building teams, mentoring students, mentoring new grads... um, We've, in my organisation, we've developed a, quite an uh, extensive new grad program where we, where we rotate people through mental health, aged care, primary community care, acute work, uh, and we nurture and encourage those people as a group. They support each other. We also have a really strong student program. So nurturing team leaders, I guess building our capacity is something that I've really enjoyed and encouraging people to do research and we've got, you know, people doing PhDs and so on because myself and other seniors in the organisation have encouraged that. Awesome. Tell me how you've overcome those moments when things have been difficult, when you've failed. Uh, What's your road to recovery? Sometimes I have a dream job of being either a park ranger or a florist. So that's, that's my backup is if I just can't cope with this anymore, I'm getting out with... There must be a common theme. It's nature and animals. Mm-hmm. I guess it, it is really hard. And my first... I mean, way back years ago, my first placement was um, was actually in the child protection system. And I found that 
so incredibly difficult. And I think it touches on a bit when you were talking about the supervision in um, a palliative care model where the organisation, I felt, let us down a little bit so some of the other workers had perhaps been a little bit more desensitised or had built up maybe a bit of a resilience Mm -hmm. to hearing some of those disclosures. But for someone who was new, that was... That was horrific and I would come home every day and I would be mentally just completely drained and I felt, and they've probably been some of my biggest, I guess, the most challenging things is thinking we can do all this stuff in this moment but then something can still go pear-shaped or a child could still get removed or this person still can't meet their healthcare needs or achieve their goals. So those, they're never really easy they're still ne- they're still not easy, and I guess it's part of what attracted me to social work is we also have quite a passion for advocacy. And I remember hearing someone say that they had a little sign on their door saying, "You know, I'm a social worker, and I come into work every day expecting to get fired." So she had obviously taken advocacy to that next level. But sometimes it is a bit is trying to use that you know privilege of hearing people's most intimate and often really horrific stories and using that to drive some social change and influence policies and politics even and looking at bigger communities. So I'm not sure that it's it's stopped being challenging. I think the day when it stops affecting me altogether will be when I probably can't do my job anymore because it balances that with that empathy. I can't kind of have that that without, um, I guess, understanding the pain that people are going. But like you said, it's also rewarding because people are sharing their vulnerabilities yeah. and that's something we can connect about and I think I, I think I heard about um, Brene Brown is, is a social work researcher who I'm absolutely a huge fan of and she talks about how we connect with other people and often we'll connect about oh who's got this car and what clothes are you wearing or I like this band so you must like them too but these really raw human emotions around loss and grief and pain and suffering are so universal yet we talk about them so infrequently mm-hmm. so I guess that you know coming into work with with that vulnerability and being able to sit with someone in that, you know, lean into that discomfort and sit with that pain and be like, well, yes, we, we all know that feeling of complete despair or pain or sadness. And I guess, you know, it's, it's not rewarding in terms of feeling those things really sucks, but being able to connect with people and just accept that we all go through those moments. And I hope that we can do the best we can within the capacity of our roles to make that transition a little bit easier for someone. So we touched a bit, I mean, we touched a bit on burnout, um, which kind of fits into supervision. It's something I ask a lot of the um, the guests on the podcast because it does get often overlooked. Mm. um, And there's a lot of, I guess, sometimes there's a bit of stigma around it too. And you just Mm. don't know, it, it could be, you know, it could be that death by a thousand paper cuts type of thing where it could be that last one of a thousand cases that just gets you mm-hmm. or it could be one big traumatic event. What are some of the, I guess, the suggestions or the your experience around burnout either personally or amongst your staff and yeah. how you've managed to support yourself or support them to find that yeah. balance? Yeah. Um, it's very difficult for organisations to be flexible about this stuff. Uh, and that's a real problem because people are different. Some people are more resilient than others and can bear more than others. And I think that there's a, a generally a dismissive attitude to um, 
not being able to cope. There's, I think in all of us, there's, there's a bit of saying, well, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, you know. So if we were to take that approach, and, you know, as a researcher and a statistician, you might say, well, here's 100 human beings and we can distribute their risk of burnout, you know, on some kind of scale. Uh, and so we might postulate, well, in these kinds of circumstances, 10% of those people are going to fail. So, and we should just discard them along the way, you know, a bit like some kind of boot camp. And I think that's the kind of attitude that a lot of people have in organisations and encouraged to have. I mean, I've heard a chief executive and he'll say exactly that. If you can't say that, if you're not like it, you can go work elsewhere, you know. As if there is some kind of choice, really, you know. So we have to tailor our response to the individual's needs. And some people need to have a longer break or need just to work part-time or need extra support or supervision or, but you actually have to, you know, like we're all different. You know, if I was to hand you, uh, you know, a baby and say, I need you to look after this baby for a couple of weeks, you'd want to know what are its special needs and, you know, what's its favourite toys and, you know, what about its, you know, cuddly bear that it, you know, all that sort of stuff. So we absolutely focus on individual needs but in the workplace, it's like, well, everyone's just the same. That's just a lot of nonsense. Yes, and I think it's a, it's an attitude that also applies to sort of mental health problems in the workplace when yeah. we, we know statistically in any 12-month period, one in five adults will be living with a yeah. diagnosable mental illness. So that's not even looking at psychological distress or something sure. deeper than that. Yeah. So it's almost statistically impossible to not know someone yeah. who's living with a mental illness Absolutely. or just to assume that they leave that at the door. Yeah. So, I mean, burnout, you know, it's, it's very similar where we have particular vulnerabilities and then particular yeah. workplace stresses or something happening in that person's yeah. life yeah. that creates this perfect, almost a soup yeah. where, you know, they, they get... They have been it. Well, they. Yeah. I think if we were more upfront about it, you know, as a community, as a society, as individuals, and acknowledging that we're struggling with mental health issues, that there'd be more sympathy. But the fact that it's kind of hidden, it's sort of a bit of a, a vicious feedback loop. Mm. You feel ashamed, embarrassed, you feel judged, and that, you know, people react in that way rather than saying, well, how can I help? Because in all of us too, you know, there is hope. There is uh, a willingness to give people uh, a hand, a leg up, uh, all those things. So we need to connect with those things and keep our organisations humane. And this is a this is a problem with um, with the evolution of workplaces in general and the very nature of work. If it's if it's that we're all kind of cogs in a machine, mm. um, then that's a problem for humanity in general. But social work is so unreproducible, so not a cog in the machine, so specific. Yep. So it's, you know, it's the last job in the, on the planet that robots will be able to do is be a mental health social worker, really. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's so much about connection yeah. and human connection. Yeah. There's so much evidence to, sh- to show that sometimes a therapeutic technique can be just as effective as the relationship you form with yeah, someone and that's yeah. so important and that that's a yeah. hard skill to to kind of to automate yeah yeah so in terms of you talk about technique 
what are you as a mental health social worker? What are the things that you're gravitating towards in terms of the way you like to work? In what, in terms of reducing burnout, or just no, no, the way I like to going work? back to because I don't think we really covered that very much. Yeah. That, that sort of notion of what are the what are the things that you find effective that you enjoy, you know, in terms of um, your approach to the work. I would say it would have to be asking more questions and being curious and not yeah. and not an automated procedure it has to be really genuine and yeah. really find people can see it like we all like to think that we can tell if someone's lying or if someone's not genuine yeah. but then we also often think that we can fool someone else and yeah. we can't both be right both sides of that can't be true so people can see like if someone's in distress or if somebody's um, skeptical or trying to build trust with you, they they can read those micro expressions. Yeah. They can see when you hold your breath. They can see when you are unsure of something. And I think for me, even being able to own that. So even having moments, whether it's professionally or even with with friends, where you know someone might say something, I, I personally think it's more supportive or more appropriate to say, "Well, you've caught me off guard. I'm not sure exactly what to say." than to pretend you have the answer. Yeah. And so just that that human vulnerability, like that person is the expert in their own life yeah. and you can help them. But even yeah. to be able to say, I'm not sure I'm the right person for that need or that can help you through that. These are the lim- And accepting these are the limitations of my skill set or these are the limitations of what I can handle. Or even if it's just momentarily, like if you've had a particular life change or a life cycle problem where, you know, maybe you've, yeah. You've lost someone, you know, if your your grandparent died and then you're yeah. working with someone whose grandparents just died, you might think at the moment this is not something I can yeah. I can handle. So being really aware of where you're at yeah. and to communicate that we're appropriate. And that's really hard. There are some organisational pressures that make that difficult for some people. I've been quite lucky. I've had a lot of workplaces that have been really supportive. But it's an ongoing conversation. It, it yeah. involves that vulnerability and that honesty, being able to say... I'm not coping, I can't handle this, these kind of patients or these clients or this workload. <clears throat> yeah. um, and then also using that as a strength, so being able to empathise with someone and connect with them and really be curious and understand. And, and say you don't know, even around um, cultural yeah. competency, how can you be culturally competent in all cultures? We, we, we just can't. So even saying, yeah. well, what's that like for you? What does your routine look like? Or how do you celebrate these moments? Or yeah. how does yeah. this fit in with what you believe and how can we work through that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that gets people more on side yeah. and, and creates a lot better discussion than just saying, okay, so you're from this background, this is what you must do, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's spot on with that because um, being open and curious about culture is um, a sensible position to take. You can't know uh, and, and culture is culture can be family culture or yep. you know, the culture of a particular town or a mm. particular... So you've got your big C and your little C culture yeah, almost. Yeah, and I think social workers are all essentially anthropologists, you know, uh, and genuine curiosity is where we need to come from. So... I've come to the, I've come to the view, I suppose, that our true expertise is not in technique, but it's in ethics. It's it's the ethics of respecting human dignity, being in the moment, being genuine, being truthful. All those kinds of things are fundamental to the human experience. And the other stuff is like you know the fancy bit of stuff that we do, and it could be 
you know, narrative, it could be strengths-based, it could be feminist, it could be, you know, CPT or whatever, but and there it's important to have those structures. It's important to have ways of doing, ways of thinking about things, you know, because they sort of, there are theories that, but, but theories are not values, you know, it's the values that drive the theories, I think. Wonderful. Before we go into a bit of a resource and tips for, for new social workers, are there any questions that I haven't asked you? Anything you think is a parting words of wisdom to our audience, to our listeners? Oh, no, I don't think so. I'm sure something will come to me later. I'm sure this might be yeah. part one of several interviews <laughs> with each other. Yeah. So, you know, to wrap up, what are some of the, you know, your top, you know, top five tips for early career social workers or new graduates? Mm-hmm. Actually, this is something that I do uh, at the end of placements because we usually have a cohort of students that we run through some of the basics of being in, in, in health and social work. Um, and so I actually go through with a bit of detail about the kinds of um, job opportunities that are available. But in terms of what we're talking about here, I strongly recommend to people to prepare well for an interview if they're genuinely interested in a particular area of work, that they do their homework, um, that they find out exactly what the client group is, that they find out about the organisation, that they actually take the time to ring up the person who's handling the inquiries and say, tell me a bit about yourself, because it's a two-way street. You know, when you're in an interview, you're at a disadvantage, but if you're just calling someone up, you can ask some questions because it's not just uh, them making a decision about whether they want you, it's about whether you want to work in that place and you can get a feel of a place, you know, if you go and visit or if you make a phone call, but, but show an interest. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's really important, I think, is for new graduates applying for jobs is understanding the transferability of their skills. So if they're looking at a particular job, it might be with a client group that they haven't worked with, but they should be able to think about what they've done in terms of their techniques, their skills, their knowledge, and so on. And a lot of that is transferable. So if you can demonstrate that, I think you're at a, a good advantage in a job interview. Um, it's also important to demonstrate, and this is probably the most important thing because when I'm interviewing a social worker, what I'm looking for is a capacity for reflective practice. That is the defining element of continuing to improve and to, you know, say you've been a social worker for 30 years, it, it shouldn't matter, you should be continuing, continuing to develop all the time and learning all the time because even at 30 or 40 years you still know practically nothing. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you mentioned that in one of your interviews with, um, I forget their names, the two ladies who run supervision sessions. Yeah, yeah. And they talked a lot about that you can't possibly know everything always. And such yeah. that reflective practice is such a foundational skill of mm. social work mm. that um, a lot of people misunderstand that in the community. They yeah. think supervision, like, oh, no, what have you done wrong? It's like, yeah, yeah. no, it's ongoing reflection. and. Exactly, yeah. And what are my biases and what, what's changed and how am I growing and developing and yeah. learning? And that's a really so good one. a good interview process will tease that out. 
but you should be prepared for those questions. And I, and, uh, I will ask questions like, uh, tell me your best supervision experience. Tell me something that you've learned. Tell me something where you failed, but you learned something from it. Mm. So I want to see reflection happening in the room when I'm talking to the person. Yeah. But if they can't, give me some moments where they, you know... I've done it perfect. Something. It's all fantastic. Yeah. So it's not just about yeah. selling yourself and what a great social worker you are and how skilled you are. Yeah. It's about demonstrating that you can think, that you can learn from your mistakes. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that happens in supervision. So if people can't tell me that, then I'm not likely to employ them. Very good tip. And what are some books or resources that you'd recommend to our listeners? Uh, well... I anticipated this question and I wrote down my three favourites at the moment. Yep, far away. Okay. One is called uh, The New Psychology of Health, Unlocking the Social Cure. Um, Alex and um, Kath Haslam are a couple of psychologists working in a unit at the University of Queensland. Now, this book is an amazing resource it summarises all the research on group work across any client group you can think of. And it demonstrates how powerful and how important it is for people to be connected to groups. Great. And, uh, and they call it the social cure. If you think about people who are struggling, um, if they went to their GP or something, the GP might say, well, you know, diet, exercise, so on and so forth. But it's very rare that anyone would prescribe joining a group. But one of, one of the pieces of literature that they quote is that you inoculate yourself against depression and early death if you join a group after you've retired. You, uh, you extend your life even further if you join two groups and even further if you join three. And there's some hard, hard evidence around all those things. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard a lot of research currently around loneliness being one of the leading causes of, of death, essentially, yeah, because death, it yeah. exacerbates almost all other chronic yeah. and acute health conditions. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the group is. Swimming club, chess. It's that connection. Bushwalking. Essentially. Uh, macrame. Beautiful. Yoga. It doesn't really matter. It's just that human connection. And I'll put a link to those um, that resource and, yeah. and the rest yeah. of your resources in the show yeah. notes. So we've got The New Psychology of Health, Unlocking the Social yeah. Cure. A very favourite book of mine is by an American surgeon called Atul Gawande. He's written a book called Being Mortal, and uh, it's about palliative care. Yeah. And he goes into, in detail, the downfalls in Western culture around palliative care. And he was the person who coined the phrase, uh, the key element of palliative care is uh, not about how you're going to die, but how you're going to live. And the question being, if time is short, what are your priorities? And how can we help you with those? Sounds like a really interesting book. It's a great book. And a bestseller of a couple of years ago uh, by Johan Hari, who's appeared on many, many podcasts across the world, uh, Lost Connections. And that's basically a, a polemical literature review of treatments for depression. So he goes into the efficacy of SSRIs. He digs into the unpublished research, which he's uncovered. He talks to all the leading lights across the world. And he also goes back to the social cure. 
it goes back to um, uh, really rediscovering that it's our communities and our networks, our families, our, our, our workplaces, that all those things are far more effective at dealing with depression. And he was uh, on SSRIs from adolescence for many years. Wow, so really good researcher as well as a personal story yeah, there. Yeah, it's a very personal story, but he's done the homework. You know, probably a third of the book is probably references. So he's really gone into it. Great book and a really easy read. And if you don't want to read it, you just Google his name and you'll find a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> or an audio book. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thanks for those. They sound like really good recommendations, okay, so and I'll pop me, links to those. So tell me yours. So uh, I've got a few uh, listed in kind of the resource section of the podcast website, but at the moment um, I've kind of recently reread the book Who Moved My Cheese. Oh, yeah. Have you read that? Uh, maybe years ago. It's from the late 90s and it's a motivational business book, so it's mm. looking at – it takes only about an hour to read and it yeah. uses the idea of – two little mice and two little, essentially two little humans um, running through a maze as a bit of an analogy for whatever it is you're chasing in life. So whether it's a, a new job, a new partner or an improved relationship with someone, you kind of draw from that maze whatever it is you're running to find. The cheese is that thing. And it's absolutely beautiful. I think it's a really good way of looking at change and adaptability and complacency and then how when the, you know, they all find their little piece of cheese that there are some that don't take it for granted and every day they get there and they're like, all right, we're, we're going to eat our cheese and then the next day we're going to do it again and how the, um, the little humans start to become complacent and think then they, um, they're entitled to the cheese and then when the cheese is gone one day, what do I do? Mm-hmm. So you can keep looking for more cheese, you can keep running through the maze or you can just sit there and essentially have a tantrum and expect it to be magically there again. Uh, And I really like it. It's a really simple book. It's been criticised for being too simple, Mm. um, but sometimes we need a little bit of simple to cut through some of the jargon. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's one book that I I really love. That really resonates for me because we're talking about opportunities for creativity and not getting stuck, uh, not going to repeating ourselves over and over again. And we need workplaces, communities, environments where creativity is nurtured and encouraged, where people are appropriately challenged Mm. and can also invent things, create things, contribute in a way. You know, if if workers in a workplace are not contributing and saying, I think we can do this differently, I think we can do this better, we should be listening to our clients more, all those sorts of things, that there's that constant reinvention that, that... I think it's part of human nature at its best. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I recommend that if you haven't read it. It's really good. Um, And the other book I'm reading at the moment is um, Diane Paul-Hellier's book, The Power of Attachment. So she's got – it's a beautiful book that you can can read on its own and it's quite valuable or she has little activities that you can do to reflect on your own attachment style and how that might be. Um, influencing some of the relationships that you're you're building or that you're in at the moment. So that's a new book, and it's um, it's a really easy read. She's got a really nice way of explaining attachment and attachment theory. So highly recommend those two. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the Inside Social Work podcast. It's been really great to have this yeah. Social Work podcast collaboration. Yeah, yeah. It's been delightful talking to you. Thank you so much. No worries. For listening to today's podcast, be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe.
subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.